Good morning. Welcome to this May 31st time of worship apart at Old Oak Bible Church. My name is Steve Barbie. You probably know me by now if you've seen a lot of our videos, but maybe not. This is could be your introduction to Old Oak. So welcome. We are located in Middleburg Heights, Ohio, and we have been living life a lot differently the last couple of months. And we hope we've shared last week our initial plan to come back together as a church in person is June 14th. Now, there are lots of things that could happen between now and then. So as always, our plan is subject to change, but we're, we want to do so in a way that is as safe as possible. We'll post our plan on our website. We've sent out our plan via our newsletter and email. And so be, be in tune for that in the next couple of days where you can just see what all it has to be in place and whether or not you would like to come back together with us at that time. But for now, we have today. And if you're watching this on Sunday morning, this is the Lord's day and this is the day that the Lord has made. And we say today that God is good. Uh, simple yet deep statement that we will look at today as we look at Psalm 34. I invite you to, to find a Bible that you have at home or to find uh, a copy of God's Word, the text of God's Word online. Lots of good websites for that. We will we'll be in Psalm 34 this morning. As we do so each week, we want to begin our time in prayer. So join me as we pray to the Lord. Good and gracious God, today we do just that. We say you are good and we want to praise your goodness, that your goodness never fails us, that your goodness, in your goodness, you will not leave us. And Lord, you are infinitely and most supremely and the source of all good. And God, we confess today that we have, we have not believed this as we ought. We have forgotten this and gone our own way. We have gone astray. We have not imitated your good as you have called us to do. And yet, God, we thank you that out of your goodness, you forgive those who have sinned and gone astray from you. And so, Lord, we thank you again for the opportunity this morning to draw near to you, the good God, to find life, and we want to do that. We want to do that through your word, through this portion of it. And, Lord, as we do that, we have other things on our mind, undoubtedly, whether it's what life looks like right now, very different, how to get back to some sort of normal. And we know in your goodness you are with us in all of that. Right now, we are undoubtedly, our hearts are with the many problems and issues going on in our day and age, even of late, even to this week. Our hearts are with the people of Minnesota and Minneapolis. Our hearts are with the family of, of George Floyd. Our hearts are with the families of police officers in Minneapolis. God, we pray that you bring comfort, healing, repentance. We pray that you bring reform and justice. We pray that you bring peace Prince of Peace. We pray, Lord, that we ourselves as Christians, your people, would be conduits of grace and peace and thoughtfulness and mercy. Help us, Lord, in these days to lean on you, to seek you, and please, God, pour forth your grace out of your goodness. Lord, we think of other churches in our area, and we pray, God, this morning for churches like Bay Presbyterian, even a church of another denomination that uh, preaches your gospel, we pray, God, that, you are, that they are united uh, in your word this morning. 
and proclaim faithfully uh, their Savior, the Lord Jesus, and your saints are edified, and people are brought into your kingdom. And we pray, God, for your, the advancement of your word throughout the world. We think of a place like Hong Kong today in a very volatile, a very uh, precarious place. And God, again, we pray that you bring peace. Peace not just in circumstances, but peace with you through your Son. And Lord, that's what we want to proclaim. That's how we want to live. Help us, God, to taste and see and know you are good as we will look at this morning. We pray that what's said here is accurate, that it's clearly divided, that we are compassionate, that we are bold, that we are loving, that we are authentic, and that we glorify your great name. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. You know, the pictures that we share with other people also carry significance. Some people can't stop showing other people pictures of their kids. I think of comedian Jim Gaffigan who says he has more pictures of his children than the number of times his father ever looked at him. Some people show pictures of their food, really low-quality pictures of altogether mediocre food, too. Maybe it's their chicken parmesan from Applebee's. I know somebody who every time I see him, he shows me pictures of his guns, and I'm not really sure what to think about that. Why do we do this? Why do we share what we share? Well, we share with other people what we boast in, what we have experienced, what we enjoy, what we love. Now, bumper stickers, we think about this too. Bumper stickers work in the same way. When you place a bumper sticker on your car, you are saying, I want to communicate to the world that I have completed this experience, voted for this candidate, aligned with this group, been to this place. Now, we may share, and we may have heard people share about stuff that's altogether not that meaningful. We may have heard people share in a way that's really shallow or insincere. But I bet you have heard people share of things that they love in a way that is charming. I bet you've heard someone share about their spouse or their kids, and they have a certain glow and spark in their eye. This morning, for those of you who have experienced life letting you down and not offering you all that you've wanted, for those who are worn out at building a significance of your own, for those who feel weary and feel the difficulty of following God, for those who feel the bruises of your battle with sin. This morning, I want you to hear the words of one who glowingly and sincerely shares his experience. And it's his experience with the Lord. And I want you to take his invitation to experience for yourself that the Lord is good. And we're going to hear that invitation from Psalm 34. Again, I invite you to turn there. Uh, if you're not looking at uh, a copy of the Bible, a copy of this psalm, uh, not looking at the psalm directly this morning, uh, you might have a hard time following along with us. So I really urge you, join me, look at Psalm 34, which is of David. It says, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. Psalm 34, verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. 
His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is God's word. And this morning, we might be reluctant, tired, disillusioned, hurt, or just unconvinced. Whatever reason, Psalm 34 beckons us off of the fence and to take the plunge into the true good life, and that is praising and knowing God. Here's the main point. We will truly praise God for his goodness only when we experience and enjoy him ourselves. I'll repeat that one more time like I normally do. We will truly praise God for his goodness only when we experience and enjoy him ourselves. Lay of the land this morning, we'll hear first David's invitation and how he makes his appeals to take that invitation. He appeals based on his testimony. He appeals based on experience itself. He appeals based on the fruit of that experience, and he appeals based on the power of that experience. So in verses 1 to 3, we start with the invitation, David's invitation. He describes how he lives, and then he invites others to do the same. He invites his readers to live the good life, that is, the life of praising God at all times. So we go through verses 1 to 3, and really we can find one element that sticks out from each one of these verses. Just looking at verse 1, that element that sticks out is that David praises God all the time. At all times, he praises God continually. Now we see this verse, we read this verse, and, and, and unless we brush past it, this verse is kind of like uh, that little hammer thing that the doctor hits you on the knee, and your, your leg pops up. And our knee-jerk reaction 
is that, wow, David, this is very, this is easier said than done. Easier, easier said than done. That's the knee-jerk reaction. And that's a fair point. But I want you to notice the context in which David declares that he praises God at all times. The title of this psalm, it says, when David, uh, he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. This is a story that comes from 1 Samuel chapter 21. At this point, David was in such dire straits that he sought refuge among the Philistines, who were Israel's constant enemies. And when he got there, he, was perceived that he perceived that he was in so much danger that he acted like a crazy person. The Psalms, uh, 1 Samuel 21 says that he even let spit run down his beard. He was in that much danger that he acted like a crazy person, and it was convincing. So that Abimelech drove him away. Now, whether or not David relied too much on his own wits, that's for another day. But in some way, David cried out to God, and God delivered him. All that's to say is that David speaks, uh, makes this invitation in verses 1 to 3, not as one who has lived an easy, comfortable life. Praise God at all times. No, David is one who is well acquainted with very hard, trying times. Probably, I would estimate, more hard and t- trying times than we have experienced. Praise God at all times. It doesn't say praise God for all times, as if we somehow enjoy trials. But praise God at all times. That God is good at all times. That God is at work at all times. Next element, we just keep going. Next verse, verse 2 The one element from verse 2 that sticks out is boast. And we've talked about this some in the introduction already, that we boast about what we love. We boast about where we find significance and what we've experienced. Just for David here, that is the Lord. The Lord is his boast. And we think about it, what what else should we boast in ultimately? What is a greater good than God himself. This echoes a place like Jeremiah 9, where it says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Now, after David's line about boasting, it's really interesting. It comes, uh, there's a line that calls for the humble to hear and be glad. The humble, let them hear and be glad. It's ironic, isn't it? That the key to proper boasting is humility. But when you think about it, We won't boast in the Lord if we are too focused on ourselves. Why would we? Keep going. We see verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, just the elements that stick out there of David's invitation. David invites others to join in his praise and boasting in the Lord. And that invitation is really direct in verse 3. In fact, that's the element that sticks out. David says, magnify the Lord with me. Come, exalt his name together. So when we truly enjoy something, praise is the overflow. 
For example, when I eat my mom's pasta, every time I eat it, no matter how many times I eat it, I say, I praise it, mom, this is good. And the overflow of praise is boasting. I tell others about my mom's pasta. And we boast to others about what we love and what we've enjoyed because really the heart of it often is the case. We simply want others to join in. If people are around me, say, come, try this food. It's really good. You'll love it. And for them not to join in the praise of the things that we enjoy, we would count that as them missing out. And we could push it even further. If they do join in in with what we enjoy, but they don't enjoy it and they don't praise it, we're befuddled. So if someone around me tastes my mom's pasta and does not like it, my gut reaction will be, what is wrong with your taste buds? So for people not to join David in praising and enjoying the Lord would mean missing out on the truest and best life that there is, the life for which we were made. That's the heart behind David's invitation in verses 1 to 3. So just in light of David's invitation to join him in praising and boasting in the Lord, we can ask ourselves, what is our boast? What do we boast in? In other words, what do we enjoy? What do we find it's just natural that we share with others? I think each one of these verses, 1, 2, and 3, can be a check on our hearts. If we don't find it natural that we boast in the Lord, it may be, like verse 1, because our praise is contingent upon our circumstances. It may be that we actually love having our own way more than we love God himself. If we don't find it natural to boast in the Lord, it may be, verse 2, Because we boast in something else, namely ourselves. But it would be hard to take in the grandeur of Mount Everest if we go to Mount Everest and just took selfies the whole time. If we don't find it natural to boast in the Lord and natural and have a desire to share him with others, if we don't have that, it may be, verse 3, because we don't enjoy the Lord that much ourselves. I don't know about you, but if I eat sort of a a normal, ordinary, kind of bland meal, I'm not all that enthusiastic to share about that with other people. Invitation. Join me in praising God at all times. But now David transitions to make appeals to that invitation. Arguments. So verses 4 to 7, he appeals to us based on his own experience, based on his own testimony. So in these verses, verses 4 to 7, David speaks of his salvation and deliverance from the Lord that isn't just physical, it's transformational. So yes, verse 6, you look there, God delivered David out of all of his troubles. But also, verse 4, God delivered David out of all of his fears. Yes, God calmed the storm around David, but also God calmed the storm within David. It's a salvation that's transformational. We see David went from what he called himself as a poor man who cried, one who had no friends, was helpless and in danger, one who did not pray with eloquence, but prayed just with simplicity and passion. He went from a poor man who cried 
And now, God has made him radiant. Radiant. Isaiah 60, verse 5, uses that word radiant to describe a mother's face lighting up when she sees her children, children who she thought was lost. This in David is a new delight. This is an awakening. This is a transformation. David went from being alone to having God's presence. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord is a way to describe God himself coming down to earth. So why is David doing this? Why does David share all this about himself? Why does he share his testimony? Well, can't you see he's telling his readers, those who are on the fence, so to speak, he's telling us, listen, guys, if God saved me, he can save you. If God saved me, he could save anybody. This doesn't just have to be my story. This can be your story as well. And each Christian who reads Psalm 34 is a testimony of this also. Each Christian is a testimony of God's transforming grace through Jesus Christ. Then we read all over the New Testament that we were once darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. That we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but now we are alive in Christ. That we were once children of wrath, but now we are children of God. That we were once enemies of God, but God reconciled us to himself, and now we are called friends of God. This transformation, this change. So a true Christian can say alongside David, if God saved me, this poor man then God can save anybody. So I don't know who all is listening to this this morning, but maybe, just maybe, you need to hear this. You need to hear the experience and see the change that takes place when God forgives us of our sin through his son's death on the cross. See the change that that brings in a person's life. Maybe you need to hear of a one like Saul of Tarsus who oversaw the execution and arrest of Christians based on, his, to, based on his religious standing. But Jesus saved him. And Saul was no longer who, one who killed disciples of Christ. He became a disciple of Christ and even made disciples of Christ. Maybe, maybe, friend, you need to hear of ones like those who lived in the ancient metropolis of Corinth. People who lived there, who lived literally in every kind of sexual sin, who partied, who stole who were greedy, materialistic, who dismissed really everything about God, but they were not out of God's reach. 1 Corinthians 6 says they were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Maybe this morning you need to hear about one who, a man named Nicodemus, teacher of teachers, upright, religious, squeaky clean, polite, many achievements, but who realized if he was going to have a good standing with God, he had to be changed. If he was going to have a good standing with God, he could not stand in himself. He had to stand in Christ. If God can save 
Saul, the Corinthians, Nicodemus, David. He can save me. He can save you. My Christian brother and sister, do not underestimate the power of God through the gospel that God has worked in your life, in your life. Think of each salvation. It's not boring. It might not be as dramatic, but each salvation is a miracle of grace. Jesus himself says we never would have come unless God drew us in. I know we have moments when we feel beaten and worn down, when our love for the Lord is dry, even when we question whether or not all of it is worth it. But when you are in that hard place, oh friend, remember his past grace. And join the chorus of praise again, even if it's just with a whimper. And be filled again with a wonder, as the song puts it, Perverse and foolish, oft I strayed, yet in love he sought me and on his shoulders gently laid and home rejoicing brought me. When we read David's story, remember your story. Remember all that God has done for you. And if God saved you, remember, he could save the people around you. And then like David, Tell your story also. So David so far began with an invitation to join him in praise and boasting in the Lord. And he invites, he makes, he appeals that invitation by appealing to his own testimony. But in verses 8 8 through 10, he invites by appealing to experience. He says, listen, don't just take my word for it. Experience the goodness of God yourself. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. So we know this just from life in general, that there are realities that we can, only, we can appreciate only by experience. Very simple. Think of the color blue. You ever try to describe the color blue with just words? I don't know how you can. Really to appreciate the color blue You have to see it. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. You could do your best to describe it, but you gotta hear it to appreciate it. McDonald's French fries. You can do your best to describe them, but oh, it's just another level when you actually taste them. Think about the Lord himself. You could do your best to describe God, But you cannot conclude about the Lord until you actually know him yourself. This past week, I watched uh, an episode of a comedy I've been watching, and and the diverse cast of characters talked about their different religions that they follow, and I knew this would be interesting. It always is. Um, One of the characters, one of the main characters, he labeled himself as an agnostic, basically uncertain about whether or not God exists. He said to him, religion is like Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd is a famous actor. He was the star of the movie Ant-Man. He said, religion is like Paul Rudd. I can see the appeal, but I wouldn't wait in line for it. Now, the perspective is funny. And that perspective, it makes sense for the caricature of Christianity that our popular culture displays. 
And the caricature has some warrant because so many people fulfill it and live it out. And that's the caricature of a Christianity that is harsh, that is ignorant, that is simplistic, that's not very thoughtful, that is hypocritical. But that character who said that would never say what he did about true knowledge of God. You would not have this kind of blah indifference about true knowledge of God. Which is why it's so rare for television shows and movies to contain characters who are genuinely and thoughtfully Christians. It's the difference between saying, I, I see those french fries, they're golden yellow, they kind of got steam coming off of them. Yeah. It's the difference between saying that and biting down on it and tasting it and experiencing it. So maybe this morning you know a lot of facts about God. Maybe you even know a lot of true facts about Jesus and the gospel. But the question is, do you actually know God? Do you actually know Jesus? I'm not talking about have you prayed a prayer or is, have you assented that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? No, have you tasted? Have you really tasted if you have, you will not have this kind of blah indifference. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells a story about a prominent and successful surgeon he knew in London. And this surgeon surprised everybody around him when he gave up his practice to become a doctor on a ship. The surgeon got to a point where he wanted to be in his career, all that he wanted, and he was disappointed. He came to the conclusion that there was no lasting satisfaction in, or meeting where he was and in the life he lived. I wonder, have you started to feel like that surgeon? Are you starting to look around you and to look at all of the ways we're told to build our significance and to build our lives, whether it's in our talent, in our career, in our personal freedom and choice, in our family, in our efforts, in our affiliations? Are you starting to look around at all of that and see that we are still wrecked with anxiety, and wrecked with discouragement? Have you drank the cup of life that you've chosen to drink? And are you starting to realize that it doesn't taste like you wanted it to taste? But it actually tastes bland and even tastes bitter. Now, if that's the case for you this morning, that's a good first step, but it is not the last step. Lloyd-Jones continues his story about this surgeon by telling us that while this surgeon saw the emptiness of life, this surgeon did not see the fullness of Christ. The surgeon became a cynic. He did not become a Christian. So those who know the bitter and empty taste of life, take the next step and taste and see the goodness of Christ. Hear the one who says, I will give you living waters. Those who drink of me will never thirst again. See others who don't just talk about Jesus, who give facts about him, but who actually have experienced him, who actually have been gripped by him and changed by him, who actually know him who don't settle for superficial Christianity, who are gripped by Christianity and experience something altogether different. 
when you see the emptiness of everything else and you start to hear the fullness of Jesus, this is the beginning of God giving you eyes to see the colors, ears to hear the music, taste to enjoy the feast. And when you believe and see that God is good, when you do that, you will discover like David did, that those who seek and belong to the Lord lack no good thing. You see that claim in those verses, verses 8 to 10? Those who fear the Lord have no lack. Now, given what we know about life, given what we've seen just in the last week, in the last two months, that claim is staggering. It's bewildering. It's borderline offensive, isn't it? I've heard one pastor recently, he shared the story of Alan Gardner. In 1851, Alan Gardner, he was an English missionary. He was shipwrecked. Uh, with other people on a very remote, very desolate island off the tip of South America. And the people who were shipwrecked there died on that island one at a time. And Alan Gardner seems to have been the last one alive on that island. And they found his journal next to his body. In the very last entry of his journal, he wrote Psalm 34, verse 10, which says, The young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And the very last thing he wrote in his journal after Psalm 34, verse 10, as he was dying, as he was surrounded by death, knowing, probably having a creeping suspicion that he wouldn't become the missionary that he wanted to be, he wouldn't see his family again, the last thing he wrote in his journal, I am overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God. Body broken, hopes dashed. Alan Gardner said that. You know, you and I, we think God is good often because good things are happening to us. But this guy, Alan Gardner, had no good things happening to him. He knew God's goodness directly. He knew who God is in himself. When we know the goodness of God directly, we know that because of God, we lack no good thing. Will we lack some of our desires? Yes. But it doesn't say that, does it? It says that we will lack no good thing. So when we lack our desires, it must mean that either out of infinite wisdom, God has determined, our Father has determined that it is not yet a good thing for us. Or out of infinite goodness, God has determined that it is not a good thing for us at all. The way we know God's goodness and know that with God we lack no good thing is because God has not withheld the best thing. That is himself, his own son. Romans 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Because of Jesus, we lack no good thing for our place with God forever. Because of Jesus, we lack no payment for our sin. Because of Jesus, we lack no forgiveness. We lack no spiritual blessing. Will we who trust God with our soul and our eternity 
not trust and praise his goodness in the here and now. Those on the fence who have never taken the plunge or who have but have backed away because they are shaken, because they are dried up, because they are weary, taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience him yourself. You know, when we read David's invitation in verse 8, I can't help but think of another invitation that is the exact opposite of verse 8. Do you remember the serpent's words to Eve in the garden? He invited Eve to taste and see. Not that the Lord is good, but that the Lord is a stingy miser. That with the Lord, we do lack every good thing. But apart from God, we will lack no good thing. Each one of us, having us, each one of us has tasted that and known the lie that that is. Hear the truth. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come to the word. Plead with him to give you a new sight, a new appetite for him that you may know yourself that God is good. So join the course. Listen to David's experience of the goodness of God and press into the goodness of God yourself. That's what we've covered so far. David continues his invitation in verses 11 to 14. Again, he's inviting. Let's read that again, verses 11 to 14. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. David was the greatest warrior. He was the best-selling recording artist. He was the greatest statesman of his time. And yet he stooped to teach children. Did you notice that? Kids, you are worth being invested in. Adults, especially people of old oak, are you above ser serving in children's church or nursery? Just a little sidebar. If David wasn't above it, all right, maybe there's something for you. But as David teaches children, what is the subject of choice for his young pupils? Is it how to shoot an arrow? Or how to wield a sword? Is it how to play the harp? How to own your political opponents? No. David taught them the fear of the Lord. And what does that mean? Well, you might get be helped by seeing David's flow of argument so far. The fruit of tasting and enjoying God is praising God. The fruit of praising God is what we say with our lips and what we do with our lives. One commentator puts it like this. The good we enjoy, described in verse 12, goes hand in hand with the good we do, described in verse 14. The fruit of experiencing and enjoying God is obeying God. Again, this is just against what we think is common wisdom. This is against the lie that we've been told by the serpent, that the world echoes, that our heart naturally embraces. We are not happier when we make the choices for how we live. 
Oh, friends, by the way, we think we are a lot freer than we actually are. We are far more influenced than we realized. No, the fullest life, like we talked about in Psalm 16, is when we know God personally and walk in his will. Like what it says here in Psalm 34, the fullest life is when we turn away from evil and do good, when we seek peace and pursue it. The point is, tasting the goodness of God leads to the fruit of living in goodness like God. So praising and enjoying God's goodness by following his ways and not our own, David says that that is life. That is life. Verse 12. I know we talk about this all the time. We shouldn't dismiss it. The Christian life is full of trials and sacrifice and really hard stuff. And this psalm is even going to close with some of that. But don't miss this here. Following the God of life means being full of life, full of joy, full of vigor. I've been reading our brother, our, our, late, our late friend, Tom Brown, uh, his book, Defined by Worship, which is wonderful. Uh, he writes this, Christ satisfies. Christians need to show the joy of that better way. The Christian life is not just about refraining or retracting. It is about a positive, exuberant, and satisfying pursuit of life in the pleasures of God. The world needs to see that Christians don't refrain from sin because they are bound to say no to desire, but because they are compelled to say yes to freedom. The Christian life it should be full of life. So those on the fence who haven't had their hearts to walk in God's way. The good and glad life God made for us to walk in is walking with him. Taste and see that again. Listen, I preach this as one who needs revival and needs reawakening every week, if not every day. I preach this as one who is prone to Low energy to melancholy, I preach this as one who is prone to timidity. And in his gentleman-like nature, God, our Father, has his way of pulling me by the scruff of the neck and telling me, you have me. You have me. The God of life. You have the gospel the power of my salvation. I have freed you. You are mine. And then I'm brought to my senses again, seeing God's goodness and realizing that walking after him is life. Let's read the rest of the psalm again, verses 15 to 22. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. 
Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. As this psalm closes, we get some really important questions addressed for us. And that's, what do we do when doing good doesn't lead to good? What do we do when the simple statement of God is good is so hard to believe? Friends, believe it or not, the Bible addresses those kinds of questions. Now, on one, on one level, we have to say that if we believe God is big enough to control and operate all of the universe, then certainly God is too big for us to understand why he does all that he does. We have to have some humility in that. But David here reminds us of the truth of how God relates to people. He tells us about who God accepts and who God rejects. He tells us how God relates to his own people. He sees them. He even sees what is hidden to us. He hears his people. He relates to his people personally. His face is turned toward us. And incredibly enough, we can experience God's goodness in a deeper, more profound way when we are brokenhearted and under affliction. Verse 18. And some of us can attest that these are the times when God has been the most real to us, the most present to us. It wouldn't have been without those times, mysteriously enough. And we see also those who go away from God will one day have a plight that is equally personal. David says they will lose the face of God, the only source of joy and love. C.S. Lewis writes it and puts it like this. We can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, finally and unspeakably ignored. Now, the mystery of why good things happen to bad people and why bad things happen to good people, that won't get sorted out completely until the future. The truth is that God's people do become brokenhearted and do go under many afflictions. As the book of Acts says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. But the truth also is that God is with us now. And we find power to hold on to the truth that God is good because as we've been saying, that is who God is in himself. We find power to hold on to the simple truth that God is good because right here, he is with us now. We find power to hold on to the truth that God is good because he's promised to do good to us then in the future. It's the very end of this psalm, verses 21 and 22. You see there are two outcomes. There is either the outcome, verse 21, of being condemned, or there is the outcome of verse 22, of not being condemned. Now, what makes the difference? It's very important how we answer that. And actually, the better question is, who makes the difference? Those who are not condemned are those, you notice, who the Lord redeems. What was the cost of this? We know it. The Lord did this at the cost of the Son of God, 
who is brokenhearted and crushed in the worst way imaginable. The father turned his face away. The son of God, who like the Passover lamb, was slain, but had no bones broken. Verse 20. The son of God, who bore the weight of condemnation for our sin on the cross, whose righteousness and payment was vindicated by God raising him from the dead. So that now, Romans 8, verse 1 says, that those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Jesus is the assurance that God is good. He's the display. He is the assurance that God is good now and God is good forever. So for whatever reason you're on the fence, you're weary, questioning, indifferent, outright rejecting, taste and see. Trust the one whose heart is good, the one who displays his goodness in Christ. Taste and see. Join the chorus. Have life. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, yes, we have tasted and seen. You are good, and we want more. And we want others to taste and see that you are good. We pray, God, that you would grant eyes to see, hearts to believe, to turn away from evil, and to turn toward you, trusting you alone, Jesus, the good shepherd, for their standing before God, trusting in your perfect life, trusting in your death in our place. And God, always will we see your goodness displayed in redemption and in our lives and have life. Fill us this week. Cause us to overflow with praise, to speak and boast of our good God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.